You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so like I said, a lot of things going on in this text that um, unfortunately when we read, often because we're prone to familiarity, especially with this story in particular, we miss those details. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk, right, verse by verse through like we have been the last couple of weeks and, and point out some key details that we need, and then we'll talk about why, why those details are important, okay? So let's jump right into verse number one, and this is what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now again, right? At first we read this familiar story. Let's move on, right? Lunch is forthcoming. Um, But let's not miss what Matthew's doing here, right? Matthew is setting up for us a conflict. A conflict that by, by the end of these 12 verses will be resolved quite clearly in what he's writing. Now, what you may have noticed is that the word king is used twice, but it's used of two different people, right? There's King Herod, and then there's these wise men who have come from the east, and they come, and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And the emphasis in the Greek there is on the word born. So we know that they're not talking about Herod. So the conflict that we have set up for us here is the conflict of this question, who's the king? Is it Herod? Or is it this one who is born? This one whom we know, obviously, to be Jesus. Keep reading, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here's essentially what's taking place, right? The wise men from the east show up asking to worship a recently born king of the Jews. And so, of course, word gets around. That word comes to Herod, right? And he hears this news and he is immediately, what? Troubled. He's troubled, right? So again, there's, this is conflict. There's, there's conflict at hand. Now, if he was the rightful king you would expect him to simply carry on. But he isn't, so he doesn't. He responds to even the the rumor of this newborn king with hostility. And this is is fascinating on a number of levels because Herod in and of himself is fascinating. At this point, he's already killed three of his own sons to maintain power. Caesar Augustus himself, recorded in history, said of Herod, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. 
This is the kind of man that Herod is. And this is why, right, when wise men from the east come proclaiming the birth of a newborn king in Israel, he's troubled. And trouble is, is almost a little soft in terms of the translation. You could use he's in turmoil, right? He's vexed. And so that's how, that's how Herod responds to this proclamation of the newborn king. And in contrast to Herod, though, the Jewish elite respond with what is, to me, a staggering indifference, right? When Herod is so worried, he comes to ask of these elites, hey, where, where's this whole Messiah thing going to happen again, right? Their one response is, yeah, Bethlehem, right? And then they just keep going on about their day. Right, like no, no pausing the DVR, no like, right, no, no, just Bethlehem, keep it moving. The long prophesied Messiah, right, could potentially have just arrived and that is their response. They simply answer the question and they go about their normal lives. Really, really interesting situation happening here. And this is a contrast that's being set up for us. Read in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? So Herod hatches a plan. Right? He's troubled. He said he's already killed three of his own sons to maintain control of what is the nation of Israel under Roman rule, right? I would venture to say that he's not worried about killing another, especially one that's not even his own. He tells the wise men that he wants to worship this newborn king as well, but we know that because he was troubled as opposed to worshipful, he has no intention of bowing at the feet of another. Keep reading. Verse 9. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the wise men are told, right, by Herod, go to Bethlehem. The, the star rises in the sky. They see it again and they follow it. They see the star. They are filled with great joy and the star of God leads them to Jesus, and in the presence of Jesus, they worship. And they worship in such a way that what was previously most valuable to them becomes something to be given over in the presence of the glory of this King. Now this stands in stark contrast to the way that the Jews have just reacted to Jesus, right? Herod responds with hostility. The Jewish elite respond with some indifference, right? And here we have 
foreigners, pagans, unwelcome in the land of Israel, who have welcomed the king of Israel with a better welcome than his own people. Now, Matthew, the author of this letter, is often known as the evangelist, right? So, meaning that he's, he has a clear desire that through this writing and that through the people of God, the, the, if the evangel, the gospel of Jesus would be made known, right? That's why it ends, the book of Matthew, with what? Go therefore, right? Make disciples, Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you, right? Like, go and tell the gospel. That's why he's known that that theme sort of underrides this entire book. And as the evangelist, he's making a point here. In the way that he has set all of this up, he's making a point. And what is that point? God's grace is now no longer limited to the narrow stream that we read in Matthew 1, right? That genealogy, this people, this is the people of God. But that now the people of God and the grace of God consist of the nations. That foreigners can now come and welcome and worship at the feet of Jesus. You see, he used the genealogy as a backdrop to put this against in contrast. To say that God's grace is for the nations. That the son of Abraham, the son of David, would bring salvation not just for Israel, but for the world. And then read verse 12. It says this. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so God, by His grace, makes it clear to these wise men that Herod's plans were not honorable. Rather, they were insidious, right? He was, in fact, not planning to worship Jesus. He was not trying to release power. He was trying to consolidate it. And a small yet very important detail is that from verse 12 on, what you'll notice is that Herod is no longer described as the king. You won't see it. He's mentioned several times more in Matthew, never with king attached to his name. That's on purpose. Why is that? Well, it's because the worship of these foreign pagans is the coronation service of Jesus. From now on, Jesus is the king. I love it. Now, so in this text, right, Matthew is clearly showing the Jewish reader, that the grace of God now extends to Jew and Gentile. Now, that's a huge deal, and we don't have time to delve into why it's a huge deal, but it's massive, right? That's why so much of the New Testament is written trying to reconcile that reality for people. These two groups that hated each other have now been made one in Jesus. God's grace is for the nations. This is so subversive for the Jewish reader. However, while that's something that Matthew would have us to know from this text, I think there's also something that he would have us to do. Like there's, there's something that he would have us to walk in, right? There's a call here. And so while that's what we need to know, we need to know that God's grace is for the nations, and that means that it's by extension for us, there's also something that we need to 
walk in and what is that? Well, the overt call of this text is quite simple. It's nothing novel. The call is to worship Jesus. And the call is to worship Jesus in a particular way. In a bit of irony, right? Men who would have been considered unwise by Jewish standards are in fact wise in that they are instructing us to worship the true king. And they are showing us the way, the wise way, in which to go about that. And so we're being called to do what men and women and children of every race, of every color, of every creed, and of every nation are being called to do at the same time. We're being called to a transcendent call which is to worship Jesus at the expense of our earthly treasures. And so if that's the call of the text, then the question we should maybe begin asking ourselves is, what is our treasure, one? And then two, am I willing to part with it? So I don't know about you, but all too often, I, I, I don't know what my treasure is until I'm asked to part with it. You see, the reason I don't worship Jesus might be like what we talked about last week. I just don't find Him awesome, wonderful, bewildering. I don't find Him to be that. And so worship just doesn't come. But this week, it could, it could simply be because I've treasured something else above Him. Because I've found something else to be more awesome, to be more wonderful to be more bewildering. Let me illustrate it this way. And my wife's not in the room this time, so uh, I'm less nervous about telling it. Uh, I distinctly remember being a teenager in the throes of young love. Right? Yeah. I was infatuated by a girl. That girl happens to be my wife now, so... It ended well, but, um, but I remember, I remember distinctly at one point in my backyard, just praying, um, and I said this out loud to the God of the universe, all right? So, <laughs> I said, God, you can have anything you want from me, right? I'll go into ministry, I'll do missions in the hardest context, in the world. I'll do whatever you want me to do, but you can't have her. Anything you want, right? Anything you want from me, all that I have is yours, except this. You can't have that. At that moment, right, I identified what I treasured more than Jesus. I identified in that moment what I found to be most awesome, what I found to be most wonderful, what I found to be most bewildering, which was this young woman. And there's a long series of events that follows after that that I don't have the time to tell you, but suffice it to say, uh, he took her away for like a good long while, and then we got married. So yeah, it, anyway, it ended fine, uh, that's, and that doesn't mean it always ends that way. Um, so this is descriptive, not prescriptive. 
Um, but right, that's what, I mean, that's what happened in that moment. Out loud, praying to God, that's what I said. This goes to show you can't trust teenagers. I think, brothers and sisters, that we all together have this problem. That we don't worship Jesus, right, with the same abandonment with which the Magi worship Jesus, right? We don't. And as members of God's church, that should be strange in the same way that it's strange for the Jews to react the way they do to Jesus. I mean, isn't it baffling? Haven't you been waiting for hundreds of years? Haven't It's been 400 years since you've heard from a prophet. All of a sudden, up comes this, and your reaction is just to like keep chewing your apple and be like, yeah, Bethlehem. It should be just as disconcerting. It should be just as strange for the church to be held captive by another treasure. I mean, do you guys, we really need to understand what it's cost the Magi up to this point, right? Because listen, this wasn't like, I, I booked my economy class ticket, right, from the east to Jerusalem, um, you know, as harrowing as TSA might be, right, this is not the same. This was not a safe journey. This was not a cheap journey, Right? before they ever get to the giving of the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. They've risked their very lives, right? Remember, you died in Oregon Trail on your computer. This is like centuries before that, millennia even, right? This wasn't safe. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't easy. And yet here they've come. And upon arriving, here's where my mind goes immediately. Upon arriving, I'm thinking, how are they going to get back? They open their treasures and go, here, take it. I'm like, wait a minute, how are you going to get home, right? Like, what if that's supposed to pay your way back? You're just going to open it and give it away? Like, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I'm at least going to put a few in my pocket just in case, right? Need to catch an Uber? Or something? And they go, no, it says they, they just open their treasure. And they mentioned three things, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but I'm sure there was much more beyond that. Now again, I think the reason is because we have something else that we treasure more greatly, right? The reason that we don't worship with the abandonment of the Magi. But I, I think that if we encounter the real Jesus, right, not some fabrication, not a minimized version of Jesus, but if we encounter the real Jesus, then we will see him to be worthy of treasuring. And worthy of treasuring in such a way that our old treasures start to not look much like treasures. So much so that we open them and go, take it, take it all. I've seen the better thing. And so let's just, let's just look at Jesus in this, right? Because Jesus leads us on this journey. 
I love when Hebrews tells us that in Jesus we have an empathetic high priest, meaning we have a high priest, right, who understands, who knows, who knows what it feels like when a preacher gets up and says, you need to loosen your grip on your treasures and for his heart to go, I don't know about that. He knows what that's like. But what does Jesus ultimately do? He lays down all of his treasures, doesn't he? He lays them all down for us. And he doesn't just lay down some of them, he lays down all of them. In fact, he lays down his most prized possession, which was what? Eternal, loving, peaceful relationship, communion with Father and Spirit. Why? Why does he do that? The Bible tells us it's for the joy set before him, right? He's been captivated by another treasure. Now, some of us, I don't know about you, but when I think of that, I go, what in all of creation, seen and unseen, could be more glorious than eternal communion with the Father and the Spirit in the context of heaven, among all of its riches, including the praises of every angelic and any other being in your presence. What could be more glorious than that? Well, it is all of that, but it is all of that shared. Isn't it? Isn't that what compels Jesus to worshipful obedience of the Father? Isn't that what compels Jesus to the greatest sacrifice in all of history? An otherworldly glory in seeing the nations come to the Father? Isn't that what captivates Jesus' vision in that moment? Isn't that what leads him when he's praying in the garden to say, take this away from me, please, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's captivated. So of course he's more than willing to live the life we should have lived in our place, to die the death we should have died in our place, to rise in victory over Satan's sin and death so that we might also rise in victory over Satan's sin and death. Do you understand that in this moment when Jesus decides to take upon himself flesh, like if he had, uh, if he had, had like an investment coordinator, right? Like if he was with Fidelity or whatever, you know, something like that. Is that I think they do investments. Goes to show what I know. Um, right? That investor would have been screaming, no, Jesus. No, no, don't do it. Don't, don't you do it, Jesus. Don't do it. Right? You are about to liquidate all of your assets. All of it. Don't do it. Right? Because by the standards of worldly wisdom, right, this is utterly illogical. It's utterly illogical. But an illogical move in the kingdom of the world is the only logical move in the kingdom of God. It was utterly illogical for the Magi to open up their treasures and to extend them to Jesus in spite of the fact that they know they've got a long journey home. But it's the only logical move when you've seen the king. 
And let's just flip it all the way upside down as if that wasn't enough, right? Jesus is willing to vacate his treasures for a greater treasure, right? This people to whom and through whom he would reveal himself. And in so doing this, right, Jesus becomes the treasure, right? That's what, that's what the magi look at and they go, okay, all these things that used to be treasures, they're just whatever. This is the treasure. And at the same time, we are Jesus' treasure, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 says that Paul wants us to comprehend in our hearts what are the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror in the morning, that's not what I think, right? I don't think, man, there is something worth treasuring. And yet Jesus has looked upon you and he's looked upon me and he said, man, there is something worth treasuring. And make no mistake, it's not because we're wonderful because we were wonderful or because we are wonderful, but because Jesus can and will make us wonderful. And so, brothers and sisters, if that is not captivating to you, if that is not something that makes you in this moment want to say, you know what, God, I don't know what I have, but what I do, it's yours. I don't know what else to say this morning. I really don't. And so let's ask the question that we asked earlier, right? Ask this question, what is my treasure? And am I willing to part with it? And then let's add a third. If I'm not willing to, why not? And basically, I just want want us to get some help in identifying those things, right? Here's how you find out what your treasure is. You find out what your treasure is by simply looking to the things that you are most unwilling to part with. It's as simple as that. This could be just about anything, and this is what's wonderful, in that it transcends culture, right? For Herod, he treasured power, and he was unwilling to part with it. And so he would not treasure Jesus the way he was meant to be treasured. The Magi, they treasured their gold, certainly, I'm sure. They treasured their home and their ability to get back to it, I'm sure. And yet they're willing to part with it in the face of the king. And so anything that you would pray to God, take what you want, but you can't take that, that is the thing that you have not found Christ to be more valuable than. The degree to which you find Christ awesome and wonderful is the degree to which you will worship Him, which is the degree to which you will be willing to lay your treasures down before Him, even your most valuable ones. So, what is my treasure? Am I willing to part with it? That's a question only you can answer, right? And if you're willing to lay everything down, congratulations, you win at lying. Because the truth is that all of us have that little place in our hearts, that thing, that 
whatever it might be, that we're utterly unwilling to lay down. And again, it's because we haven't found Christ to be more wonderful than that thing. But what's great about this is that Jesus doesn't just hit the proverbial X button, next, but rather he simply beckons us to come and try. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? He says, go ahead. Give it a shot. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? I mean, th think about that. Rather than simply setting us aside, you're unwilling to worship me. He instead gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to try and to taste and to see that he's good. But here's the trick to that, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever—I don't know if you've ever been offered like a food that looked just really disgusting, you know. But your friend was like, "Oh my God, it's so good! You have to try it, right?" And you're looking at it like, "No, I don't want that," right? And your friend's just on and on. It's so good, and then you taste it, and it tastes terrible and you punch your friend in the face. I'm just kidding. That's not the answer. Um, here's the deal. You're never going to know unless you actually try it. Right? You'll never know. It will always be a mystery to you. Your friend could continue to herald the gospel of whatever it is right to you, but until you put it in your mouth, you will not know. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true with the treasure that is Jesus. That until we try laying down our treasures in favor of Him, we won't actually know whether or not He's worth doing that. But Jesus is utterly confident. That's why He says, come, taste, see that the Lord is good. Right? Just like any other... It, any other consumer product, when you're confident that your product can beat another product, what do you do? Test it. Compare. See. You'll see. I'm confident. That is a terribly low analogy for what is a glorious truth, that when we come and we taste of the Lord, we will taste His goodness and we will see that He is worthy of that, that those things will no longer be things that we treasure because there's something greater in our midst. But if we don't do it, we'll never know. And so my hope and my prayer, brothers and sisters, during this Advent season, during this Christmas season, and the reason that we're doing an Advent giving campaign during this season is that we would be so filled with awe and wonder at the real Jesus that we would be led to worship Him in such a way that what used to be treasures are no longer treasures because we're in His presence. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this morning. Again, thank You for the opportunity to be gathered together. You are great and You are good. And we thank You, Lord, that this morning in coming to Your table to celebrate communion, 
that we can taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to the table this morning rejoicing, rejoicing like the Magi, as those who have seen a greater treasure, as those who have beheld the King and found Him to be satisfied of all of our wants, all of our needs, and all of our desires. And Lord, that in taking the bread and the cup this morning, we would release whatever it is that we're holding in its place right now so that we can take it and enjoy it as it is meant to be enjoyed. Lord, you are gracious. You are good to us in all things, most of all in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.